0: This week I was reading just the headlines of, of the, you know, uh, Fox News and saw a headline that really caught my attention. And here's, here was the headline. I, this is just four days ago, July 26th, four days ago. Headline reads, California Imam under fire after asking Allah to annihilate Jews in sermon. Here's the first sentence of that article. I won't read the whole article to you, but just the first sentence. Jewish groups have asked Homeland Security and the U.S. Attorney's Office to investigate a California imam who gave a sermon calling on Allah to annihilate Jews down to the very last one and asked for his congregants to take part in the slaughter. Sounds eerily similar to another man we've been looking at in the book of Esther, a man named Haman who wanted to annihilate the Jews Down to the very last one. In fact, let me just show you, go to Esther chapter 3. We're not going to stay there, but just that one verse reminds you of what we've read. See if it doesn't sound like the headline that I've just read to you. Esther chapter 3, verse 13. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and here's the word, annihilate all the Jews. Young and old, women and little children, on a single day. And we could put in parentheses down to the very last one. You see, ladies and gentlemen, history seems to repeat itself, doesn't it? Especially in relation to God's people, the Jews. Whether it's Pharaoh in Egypt or Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon or Haman in Persia or Hitler in Germany or an imam in California, there have always been those who want to destroy and annihilate God's people, the Jews. Now, what they don't realize is that the enemy of the Jews is the enemy of Almighty God, and they will not succeed. A man named Haman had to learn that lesson the hard way. And so today we come to Esther chapter 6 and to Esther chapter 7, where we read the account of Haman, and he had to learn the lesson that an enemy of the Jews is an enemy of God. Now, for some of you, this is the first time you've been here or you've been on vacation or you've been on a mission trip, so I thought it would be a good time, a good place for us to kind of walk through the book again to remind us of what we've learned, especially if this is your first or second time to be with us. And so let's start in chapter 1. Just let your fingers do the walking through the pages of Scripture. And I'll just kind of review each chapter as we work our way to today's text. In chapter 1, as the book opens, we learn that Queen Vashti is deposed. That is, she loses her crown, she loses her place as the queen of Persia. And in chapter 2, a young Jewish orphan named Esther is made queen. Esther's mom and dad died when she was a young lady. Uh, She was taken in by a man named Mordecai, a a relative of hers who raised her as his own daughter. And this young Jewish orphan was chosen to be queen of Persia. They didn't know she was Jewish, but she was a beautiful woman, and she was chosen by the king to be queen of Persia. That's in Esther chapter 2. Then we come to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, Haman, a new character in the story, is introduced Haman is elevated to prime minister of Persia. And a Jew named Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. And so Haman decides that he wants to kill Mordecai. Haman is a very powerful man. In fact, he's the second most powerful man in the Persian kingdom. And when this Jew would not honor him, when this Jew, Mordecai, would not bow down to him, Haman decides not only to kill Mordecai, but to kill all of Mordecai's people, to kill all of the Jews on a single day. When we come to chapter 4, Mordecai goes to the palace and he pleads with Queen Esther for her intervention. He pleads with his adopted daughter for her help. And he says to her, perhaps you were brought to the palace for such a time as this. Then we come to chapter 5, and in chapter 5, Esther decides that she will indeed put her life on the line and she will ask the king to spare her and to spare her people. Esther invites the king and and invites Haman to a private banquet where she's going to ask the king for his intervention. For whatever reason, and the the theories are numerous, but for whatever reason, in chapter 5, she does not request the king's help at this first banquet. Instead, she invites them to come back the next night for another banquet where she will introduce her request. As chapter 5 ends... Haman is so filled with rage against Mordecai that he can't wait until the appointed day of slaughter. And so his wife and and their their friends suggest to him the best way to deal with Mordecai is just to go ahead and kill him. So why don't you have a gallows built here near our house and let's just go ahead and hang him and then you can be happy. That pleased Haman. Here's how chapter 5 ends. His wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have a gallows built 75 feet high. And ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hanged on it. And then go with the king to the dinner and be happy. And this suggestion delighted Haman and he had the gallows built. 75 feet high. I told you last week that's seven and a half stories high. Haman wants to make a statement, doesn't he? He wants to make a statement about his power against Mordecai. But more than that... He wants to warn all the Jews, let every Jew see, this is what awaits you. This is what's coming. Now, we come to chapter 6, our text for today, and some Bible scholars call chapter 6, verse 1, the pivot point of the book. Here's the way it begins. That night, the king could not sleep, so he ordered the book of the Chronicles and the record of his reign to be brought in and read to him. Now if you have a pen or pencil handy, I would encourage you to mark your Bible those first two words that night. That night. That night while Haman's men were building the gallows for Mordecai. That night God intervened. God did not intervene previous to this, at least not in an obvious way, but on that night, the night before Mordecai is to be executed, that night when the gallows are being built, that night, God intervened. I love what somebody said. That <clears throat> she said, God is never late, but He sure misses some good opportunities to show up early. <laughs> That's, I, I can put an amen there. But thank God He does show up. Amen? That night, very unusual series of unexplainable coincidences began to occur. And I'm going to give you four of them. There's probably more than four, but for time's sake, I want to give you four coincidences, if you will, that when you look at them individually, you'll say, that's not a big deal. But when you look at them collectively, when you see that these coincidences occur in sequence, you will look at the total picture and say, that had to be God. So let's look at these coincidences. Here's the first one, verse 1. That night... The king could not sleep. You say, well, Keith, that's not a big deal. I mean, there's lots of nights I don't sleep. Well, what do you do when you can't sleep? You know what I do? I usually get up and turn on the TV, or I'll get up and lay on the couch, or I'll get up and I'll lay in the recliner and try to sleep there, or sometimes I'll get up and eat a bowl of Fruit Loops. You know, it just kind of helps. Uh, you know, what do you do when, when you can't sleep? Well... Uh, Here's what Xerxes did. Now, now keep in mind the options that he had. This night, Xerxes couldn't sleep. And there's there's perhaps a reason here. The Septuagint, which is the the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. It was translated about two or three centuries before Christ. The the Septuagint translates this part of the verse this way. It says, That night... I'm sorry, the Lord took sleep from the king that night. In other words, the translation, the Septuagint translation, implies that the reason that King Xerxes couldn't sleep was not just that he had insomnia, but that God was keeping him awake. God was keeping him awake because God had something he wanted to show him, something he wanted to tell him. So here's coincidence number one. The king couldn't sleep. You say, well, that's not a big deal. I understand that. But let's put it with coincidence number two. Coincidence number two is he ordered the book of the Chronicles to be read to him. Now, I got a little ahead of myself when I was telling you about what I do when I can't sleep. Here's what the king had options to do. He had a harem. He could have brought somebody in. He had musicians. He could ask them to come to play, maybe play a harp and let him drift off to sleep. Uh, He had other people that could cook for him or feed him and had all kinds of options of what he could do if he couldn't sleep. He chose the one that probably you and I wouldn't choose. He said, I want somebody to come in and read to me, and I don't want them just to read anything. I want them to read the book of the Chronicles, which basically was a diary of how the king had ruled in his reign as king of Persia. Somebody come in and read to me what I've been doing these years as I've been king. Now watch this. Everybody watch this. Of all the books or the scrolls that the servants, the attendants could have chosen... Guess which one they chose? Just by coincidence, they chose the very scroll or the very book that contained the story about something that Mordecai did five years previously. And not only that, but not only did they choose that particular scroll or book, but when they opened it up, guess where they opened it up? They opened it up to the story of these two guys who tried to assassinate the king five years previously and there's a man named Mordecai who had spared his life by revealing this assassination plot. Isn't that a coincidence? Five years ago this happened. Now the attendant goes to get the book, the scroll, to read to the king to put him to sleep and he reads the very story. Of what Mordecai did for the king. Verse 2. It was found, recorded there, that Mordecai had exposed Bigthana and Teresh. Two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway. Who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Coincidence number 3. The king's delay in rewarding Mordecai was was just something that never happened. You see... Verse 3, the king asks a very important question. What honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this, the king asks? Because the king always would honor somebody who was loyal to him. It was a way of fostering that loyalty. It was a way of maintaining stability in his kingdom and his own personal safety. So the Persian kings, whenever somebody did something prominent uh, for the king, the king would thank them and reward them publicly. And so he very naturally asked the question, well, what did we do for that guy? And the attendants basically said, We didn't do anything for him. Nothing has been done for him, the attendants answered. Very unusual. The king's surprised to learn that nothing's been done for Mordecai some five years ago when he spared the king's life. Coincidence number four. This is where the story really gets good. The king said, Who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about hanging Mordecai on the gallows that he had erected for him. His attendants answered, Haman is standing in the court. Bring him in, the king ordered. Isn't that a great moment? Is that a great moment or what? I mean, the sun is barely over the horizon. In fact, some scholars believe that the sun had not yet even come up. And the king says, who's in the outer court? Now, see, the king is in his bedchamber. So he says, who's in the outer court? Who's in the court waiting to see me? Anybody out there yet? And the attendant said, well, there's one guy out there, and Haman is out there. He wants to see you. Now, now Haman's got to be feeling pretty good about himself right now because Haman comes early. He wants to be first in line to see the king so that he can get permission to go ahead and hang Mordecai on the gallows he's had built all night. And so he's feeling pretty good about himself because, watch this, the king invites him into his private bedchamber. Nobody gets that privilege. I mean, it's an honor if you get to go into the throne room, but he gets to go into the private bedchamber. And in fact, not only that, the king has a question for him. He wants Haman's input. He wants Haman's advice. And so Haman's ego is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So how do you know that? Oh, just read the story and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. When Haman entered, entered, verse 6, when Haman entered, the king asked him, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? Now Haman thought to himself, Who is there that the king would, would rather honor than me? I mean, oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way, you know? Somebody ought to write a song about that. Who, who is better to be honored than me? I mean, all of a sudden, ideas start clicking in his head. I mean, he invited me into the private bedchamber. He's asking me, what do you think I ought to do for somebody that I'd like to honor? And Haman thinks, I'm second in command. Who else would he honor? And so, here's what he says. Haman thought to himself, who is there that the king would rather honor than me? So, he answered the king. For the man the king delights to honor, and it's almost as if he's thinking this up as his mouth is going. For the man, the king. You know, because of the way he introduces this, normally it would be old great king," or 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 some kind of you know perfunctory introduction. But he says what the king had said. For the man, the king delights. Let's see. For the for the man, the king delights. For the man, the king delights to honor. Here's what you ought to do. Here's what he says. For the man, the king delights to honor. Have them bring a royal robe the king has worn, and a horse the king has ridden. One with, not just a horse, but one with a royal crest on its head. And then let the robe and the horse be entrusted to one of the king's most noble princes. And let them, the, let them robe the man and that the king delights to honor. And lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Wow, what a great idea. So since he's second in command, he's thinking, I can't ask for a higher position. I mean, the higher position is being king. I can king. So I can't ask for a higher position. So I'm just going to ask that I get to be honored and treated like a king. I'm going to wear his robe. I'm going to ride on his horse. So they're going to lead me through the town. And somebody's going to be in front of me saying, this is what's done for the man the king delights to honor. You see... Haman knew that when they brought him through the town on the king's horse, wearing the king's robe, that he would be elevated in the eyes of his peers because of his close association with the king. And he fantasized about what it would be like to be treated like a king for a few moments. And wearing the king's robes and riding the king's horse, his status would be elevated greatly among his peers. I mean, it would be kind of like President Trump calling you up, saying, hey, you going on vacation this week? Why don't you take Air Force One? You know, you going over to Hawaii, I'm going to have Air Force Force One. They'll be over at uh, GSP, they'll pick you up. And when you land in Hawaii, when they see Air Force One landing, guess what? When they see Air Force One landing in Hawaii and you get off, people are going to say, I don't know who that is, but man, he must be important. All of a sudden, your status, you're a nobody, but all of a sudden, your status has been elevated simply because of your association with the president and your ability to fly Air Force One on vacation. I mean, your status will be greatly elevated in the eyes of everybody. They'd be treating you like, like royalty. So Haman says, here's what y'all do, King. I mean, I just thought about this, but, you know, if there's somebody you really want to honor, go ahead. Just your personal robe, let him wear that. Your private horse, let him ride that. Let somebody go through the town saying, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And now comes one of my favorite verses in the entire book of Esther. Verse 10, go at once, the king commanded Haman, get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. And, And Haman is like, Mordecai? I got plans for Mordecai, and it's not to ride a horse. I came to talk to you about Mordecai. Mordecai gets to ride the horse, and he gets to the Mordecai? And the king says, oh, it's a great idea. I'm glad you thought of it. Look, look what he says. Uh, look at verse 11. <laughs> or oh, verse 10. Get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate. Do not neglect anything you have recommended. It's almost as if the king can see in his face that he didn't want to do this. He says, now listen, last thing is, don't, don't you neglect to do anything. You just suggest it because it's a great idea. Now go find Mordecai and do everything you said. Now folks, I don't think that any believer in God could read this story and conclude that this was just a story about a lucky break for Mordecai and an unlucky break for Haman. Something more than coincidence or blind chance is going on here. God's sovereign hand is at work here protecting Mordecai and protecting the Jews, his chosen people. In fact, even Haman's wife came to that same conclusion. Look at the text in verse 12. Afterward, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. I I was about to skip something really, really good. Verse 11. So Haman got the robe and the horse, and he robed Mordecai and led him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor this is just my theory. I don't think he said that with great enthusiasm. I think he went through the streets pulling that, that horse, and Mordecai's on the back, and I think he said something like this. This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And he'd go down another street, and everybody's pointing at Mordecai. Everybody's clapping. Everybody's looking, admiring Mordecai on the king's horse, riding, uh, wearing the king's robes, and here's Haman, and he's just... This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. And he goes street by street by street doing that. Now, now we come to what happens next. After verse 12, afterward Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman rushed home, look at this, with his head covered in grief. I mean, this guy is dying. He's covered his head in grief. And told Zeresh, his wife, and all his friends, everything that had happened to him. And his advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, this is so interesting. Since Mordecai, before whom your downfall has started, is of Jewish origin, you cannot stand against him. You will surely come to ruin. Even the pagan wife of Haman knew that these ironic coincidences were more than just coincidences. Even the pagan wife understood something is happening here to this Jew and you're not going to be able to defeat him and you're not going to be able to stand against him. And then we read in verse 14, while they were still talking with, the, with him, the king's eunuch arrived, hurried Haman away to the banquet Esther had prepared. Suddenly Haman has no control over his life. He has no control over his fate. Suddenly everything is put in fast forward as he goes to see the king and the queen. Now, I'm sure between his house and the palace, he's trying as best he can to get his stuff in order. You know what I mean? He's trying as best he can to kind of reel in his emotions, trying to, you know, dry his tears and just trying to put on the best face he can because he's getting ready to go into the palace, see the king, see the queen, and go to this banquet. So he's trying to kind of brush it off as, okay, at least I get to go to the banquet. At least I have another time with the king and the queen. I'm still an important person. They invited me to the palace. This is the second time they've done so. I, I need to focus on that. So we come to chapter 7, verse 1. <clears throat> so the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and as they were, di- as they were drinking wine, on that second day the king asked or the king again asked queen Esther what is your petition now notice this the order what is your petition question 1 what is your petition it will be given you question 2 what is your request even up to half the kingdom it will be granted this is now the third time that the king has asked Esther about the question she wants to ask The third time that he assures her of his positive response and his generous response. I don't know for sure, the text doesn't say this, but it's my theory that between the first banquet and the second banquet, a period of about 24 hours, it's my theory during that time that Esther was probably rehearsing what she was going to say. She knew that in this second banquet, she'd have to tell the king who she was. And she'd have to plead for the king for her life and for the life of her people. So between that first banquet and the second banquet, I'm sure she gave great thought to what she would say and how she would say it. She probably rehearsed that speech many times. And here's what she said, verse 3. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, O king, now, first of all, that's different from, from the first banquet. In the first banquet, chapter 5, verse 4, she begins by saying, If it pleases the king. It was kind of a, a formal way to address. Formal way to address exertions, a formal way to make a request. If it pleases the king. Chapter 5, verse 4 is how she began last time. This time, much more personal. This time she says, If I have found favor with you, O king. Translation. If you really love me, if you really care about me, here's my request. Look what she says. If I have found favor with you, O king, and if it pleases your majesty, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my petition. Request. She answered just like the king had asked. He said, what's your petition? What is your request? And she says, here's my petition. Spare my life. Here's my request. Spare my people. Now, verse 5. Verse 4. For, for I and my people have been sold for destruction and slaughter. And what's that next word? And what? An annihilation, if we had merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because so much distress would, would just, no such distress would justify disturbing the king. And so, verse 5, King Xerxes asks Queen Esther, Who is he? Where is the man who has dared to do such a thing? Now, on some of your TVs, you have the ability to push a button and to pause a TV show, right? And you free somebody just in an awkward position. I wish we had the ability in the Bible to push that pause button. When King Xerxes says, Who is this person and where is this person? I'm like, push the pause button. I want to see Haman's face. (laughs) Because you know where he is? The king doesn't know where he is yet. But Haman knows where he is. (laughs) Haman is like right in front of the king and right in front of the queen. And the king says, Who is this that is trying to take your life? And where is this man that's trying to do this to you and to your people? Verse six, don't just read this verse, fill it. Feel the anger, feel the tension, feel the drama. Esther said, Verse six, The adversary and enemy is this vile Haman. Pause button. The adversary, the enemy, is him. This vile Haman. Now, if you're Haman, what do you do? Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That would be a good option, except they're going to find you eventually. If you're the king, what do you do? You know what he did? If it had been me, I would have grabbed him by the collar right then and there. But you know what the king did? The king got up and he, and he left. He went outside. One of the things about Xerxes, when you study his life... He always has counselors. He always has advisors. He, when he does something, he's always asking people, what do you think I should do? In this particular situation, there were no counselors around. There were no advisors around. So when he's confronted with this situation, he's apparently trying to figure out how to handle it. He's, he's furious, and he's not sure what to do. And so he leaves. He goes outside in the garden, and he's walking around trying to figure out, how do I handle this? What is it that I need to do about this? I'll show you what I'm talking about. says, Esther, the the adversary, the enemy is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. Verse 7, the king got up in rage and he left his wine and he went out into the palace garden. But here's what Haman did. Haman, realizing that the king had already decided his fate, stayed behind to, what's that next word? To beg Queen Esther for his life. The bully becomes the whiner. He's pleading for his life. He was blowing his own horn. Now he's blowing his nose. And he's begging for his life. And what a paradox. Haman had been furious because a Jewish man would not bow down to him. And now he is bowing down to a Jewish woman. Begging for his life. And it just keeps getting better. Verse 8. Just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, the king apparently has decided what he's going to do, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, Will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? I mean, he's ticked off. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Now, here, here's, here's the way it went. He's out there trying to figure out what to do. Haman's trying to figure out what to do. He's trying to figure out how do I get out of this. He knows his only shot is to beg Esther to spare his life. And somehow in the process of approaching her, he trips and he falls either on her or at least towards her. And just as he trips and falls, the king walks in. Now the old Jewish rabbis used to say that the reason that he fell on Esther was that the angel Gabriel pushed him at just the right time. (laughs) I don't know if that's true or not, but it it kind of makes sense, right? I mean, you know. But just as the king is coming back in and he's filled with anger, all of a sudden here's Haman falling all over Esther. And the king, as we say in my house, the James Shorter came out in him, came out of him. And sometimes the James Shorter comes out of me. Here's what happened. Verse 8, just as the king returned from the palace garden to the banquet hall, Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was reclining. The king exclaimed, will he even molest the queen while she is with me in the house? I don't think that's what he was trying to do. But, you know, it was just, again, one of those weird circumstances. As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, said, Uh, Sir, sir, sir uh, There's a gallows That's a real big one They just built it beside his house Just a suggestion If you want to kind of hang him on that It's just right out there Look what it says A gallows 75 feet high Stands by Haman's house He had it made for Mordecai Who spoke up to help the king the king said, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the gallows he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the king's fury subsided. I'm going to give you quickly two lessons for our lives from this story. Here's the first one. Number one, lesson number one. God never forgets his people or his promise to them. Can you say amen to that? God never forgets His people or His promise to them. So, Pastor, what do you mean by that? Well, it's interesting when you look at history that every enemy who has ever tried to destroy Israel has been destroyed. I want you hear that again. Every enemy that over the, over the years who have tried to destroy Israel have eventually been destroyed. And it all goes back to a promise that God made to Abraham. And to his descendants. In Genesis 12, you don't have to take time to read there. I've got to hurry up. Genesis 12, 2 and 3, here's what God prom- promised to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants, the Jews. He says, and I will make you, that is you and the Jews, a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And listen to the last verse. And the one who curses you, I will curse. God says basically this, my people will be protected and you curse them and you will pay a terrible price. And God has kept that promise that he made to Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. God has kept that promise he made to Abraham century after century after century. Now, this doesn't mean that God's always been pleased with Israel and what Israel has done or what Israel will do. But it does mean God will not sit by and allow anyone to destroy His chosen people. Attack them? Yes. Sometimes slaughter them? Yes. Hitler proved that. But eventually, those who try to annihilate God's people, eventually, they are always annihilated. Lesson number two. God is... Listen, this is so good. And this is not original. I got it from Chuck Swindoll. God is not almost sovereign. That's the way we treat him though, right? Well, I know that God can do a lot and God's sovereign, but, you know, this situation here, I I don't know that God can do that. I don't know that God can change her. I don't know that God can change him. I don't know if God can deal with this. I don't know if, if we treat God as if he's almost sovereign. What we learned from the story of Esther is that when things seem out of control, they are never out of his control. He's not almost sovereign. He is sovereign. And, but many times when God is working, he's working in subtle ways. Sovereign ways, yes, but subtle ways. Beth Moore put it this way. She said, sometimes Christ walks through, walks through our crisis dressed in the best disguise of all, ordinary events. You see, the turning point of our life, the significant times in our lives often are subtle times in our life. And it's not until we get through and we look back that we actually see the significance of what happened. It's not until we can look back and see how this was affected by that and that was affected by this and how these all link together in a series of coincidences that we recognize that's not coincidence, that's God. Ladies and gentlemen, never underestimate the extraordinary things that God can do in ordinary events. Things that happen in Esther 6 and 7 are too uncanny to call coincidences. I mean, if you think about your own life, I'm going to close with this. If you think about your own life, your life, significant times in your life, significant moments in your life, all of those are linked together, aren't they, by a series of insignificant events? You think about how you met your spouse and married him or her. This, the chain of events that led you to that point. If you look at them individually, those times are probably insignificant. If you look at how you came to faith in Christ, it probably was a series of ordinary events that led you to that place of putting your faith in Christ. If you think about how you got your job or how you were led to that school or that university, you look back on it all, it's, it's a series of subtle, insignificant events that really become significant because they're in the hands of a sovereign God. So here's what I want you to understand today. God is not almost sovereign. He is sovereign. And He deserves and demands that we place our life in His hands. I love what Philip Yancey said when he said, Faith means believing in advance what will only make sense in reverse. Isn't that good? Some of you today, you need to believe in advance, believing that God is sovereign, and though these look like insignificant times, maybe God is doing something very significant for you. Would you join me as we pray? Father, we recognize that tiny miracles often direct our steps, though they don't even look like miracles at at that time. Thank you for reminding us that you remember your people and you remember your promises and that we can trust in you and in what you have promised us. Thank you for teaching us today, Lord, that you are not almost sovereign. You are indeed in charge of everything. And we believe that and trust in that. And sometimes we have to place our faith in You in those times when really we begin to doubt and we begin perhaps to even deny what we used to believe. But may You again call us back to that close personal walk because it is a walk of faith, believing that these insignificant moments will one day lead to something significant. So Lord, would You do the extraordinary through our ordinary lives. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.